You know, there were several biblical realities that would surface over the course of my ministry over and over again. Many of you will be able to recognize some of those, that the idea that we are called to live with lavish gratitude for God's abundantly lavish grace in our lives. Or the adage that we drew out of, out of Genesis, the series on Genesis, wherever your path leads, God is already there. Now, that really, I don't think, was original with me. I hear it all over the place. Or I've, we've prayed here together, God, may you grow yourself bigger and bigger in our hearts and minds. Not that he becomes bigger and bigger, but that our concept of God in our hearts and minds grows bigger and bigger. And of course, you've heard me say so many times, this is a broken, broken world, but God is greater than the brokenness. And it's that last one that I want to focus on this morning. I want to share with you several scenarios of this world's brokenness. Now, we don't really need to be convinced of the world's brokenness. My goodness, Pastor Steve prayed for the folks in Texas, and, and it's horrific when we begin to think about it. And every day in our lives, in our lives personally, we experience the brokenness. And then certainly in our nation and in our world as well. And so today, again, as always, I pray that the Spirit of God would bring his truth to bear in each of your lives and mine as we share God's word together. As I, one of those other things, no one is here by accident. If you're here, if you're watching online, it's not by accident. God has a purpose for you being here. God has a purpose for you hearing the word of God that we have for you today. You know, as the Scriptures reveal the story of redemption through Jesus Christ, it's an unfolding, progressive revelation. And that story, that big story of God's salvation and redemption for a broken and sinful people is unfolded in the context of people, broken sinners, in the context of individuals, the context of families, and it's unfolded with much drama and heartache. Let me just take a few moments to consider some of these. Again, that's what's wonderful about the Scriptures. They don't present this, this um, polished version of people. They present people as they were, people like we are. Again, broken sinners. The first parents, Adam and Eve, knew the crushing heartache of both a murderous son and the death of, a, of another son. Noah knew the humiliation of a drunken lapse. Sarah knew the pain of being childless and the drama that a mistress brought into her life. Or Rebecca's life made difficult by two sons' sibling rivalry and of her own picking a favorite. Rachel knew the longing of a heart waiting for her love for 14 years because of the deception of her future father-in-law. David and Bathsheba knew the sorrow of a sudden infant death. David and his wife Makah, Absalom's mother, lived the drama of a son growing up to seek to kill his own father, King David, to take his throne. Job and his wife lived through the horror of losing everything they had, including all of their children. The mother and father of the prodigal son knew the pain of a wayward child and the foolish decisions that that one made. 
the disciples' lives were filled with failures and faithlessness. Paul and Barnabas had a a, a stinging disagreement that, that ended their ministry partnership to godly men. And the list can go on and on. So what's the point? I know you don't need to be convinced about it, but life is broken. Life is messy. And we are, and sinfulness is rampant. But God, okay? But God. The good news today is that God is greater than the brokenness of this world. He's greater than the failures of our past. He's greater than the challenges that we face today. He is sovereign over both the joys of our lives and the sorrows of our lives. So yes, life is messy. Life is broken, but God always shows up. And this morning, I want to look briefly at three different scenarios of brokenness. Some of that drama that's revealed through sinful, broken people. But more than that, I want to look at how God demonstrates that he is greater than all of this. He is the God who sees compassionately. He is the God who remembers purposefully. And he's the God who saves mightily. So let's look at these scenarios today. The first one, I turn your attention to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. I'm not going to read these accounts. So a little different message today, not in one passage. I so appreciate Pastor Andrew's uh, method of preaching, again, going through books of the Bible and those kinds of texts. But we're going to look at three different scenarios today, a little bit different tact, but still biblical. And this is the story of Hagar and her, Hagar, the mistress of, of, of Sarah and Abraham. Hagar, here we see in Genesis 16, bears the pain of loneliness and isolation. Hagar knew the brokenness and heartache of loneliness, alienation, and isolation. So you can skim Genesis 16 as I'm sharing some of these things, and you'll pick up that story quickly. Many of you may be familiar with it. Some may not. Abram's wife, Sarah, had borne her husband no children, choosing not to wait on God's promised provision of a son. God promised a son would be born to them. But choosing not to wait, she gave her Egyptian servant, Hagar, to her husband, Abram, as his wife. And the drama began. Hagar became pregnant, and resentment immediately sprung up in the heart of Sarah. Sarai at this point, but Sarah, Sarai, same person. And Hagar, in becoming pregnant, that that resentment sprung up as jealousy and envy took root in Sarah's heart. And it tells us in the text that Sarah began to look with contempt on Hagar from that day forward and dealt harshly with her in verse 6. You know, jealousy of another's life, envy of another's well-being will eat you up from the inside out every time. And we can be prone to doing that, 
to seeing others in our lives. I think of Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. He looked around and he saw the prosperity of the arrogant and he made some faulty conclusions. They have no problems. They have no ills. Everything's perfect for them. They don't even regard God and everything's perfect. That's not true. But he began to envy and you know, it began to put Asaph in this spiral downward and halfway through that Psalm, it says he was a beast before the Lord. But then it says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then he saw with an eternal perspective, and it changed everything within his heart. But we may look at someone else's house, someone else's job, someone else's relationship that they have, someone else's health, someone else's wealth and security, and the list can go on, someone else's ministry. That person gets all the breaks, we may say. And jealousy and envy begins to rot from the inside out. So here's Hagar, a mother-to-be who was obedient to her master, and she now finds herself living in the pain of loneliness and isolation and alienation. She felt the disdain of Sarah. She experienced the rejection of her husband. In the verse it says there, but Abram said to Sarah, now listen, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. <laughs> so much for a husband standing by the mother of, her firstborn, of his firstborn son. You deal with it. I'm out. Abram turned on Hagar in some ways. And she felt that daily sting of isolation, of neglect, of alienation. And she did what would be natural. She took off. She ran. Tells us in verse 6, she fled from Sarah. And she told the angel of the Lord, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarah. So here's a woman who was suffering in silence. Nobody knows what I'm going through right now. You ever felt that way? Nobody knows what I'm dealing with right now. I venture to say that there are people here today, moms, maybe single moms, men, and I know this, young people an evidence of it this past week with an 18-year-old who goes into a school and shoots it up. Young people suffering in silence. Might I even say kids, kids suffering in silence. And so she runs. I think of Psalm 55. It was a psalm that meant a lot to me at times in my life. I think I've preached on it. I preached a message, I think, entitled Overwhelmed and Outmanned, Psalm 55. But here's what we read in verse 6. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. And you feel like that when life keeps coming at you. You say, when's it going to end? It's one thing after another. 
overwhelmed, outmanned. God, I just want to get away. Life is overwhelming. Perhaps you can't see an end. Could be family stuff. Could be kids. Could be grown kids. Could be job situations. Could be financial pressure. It's a hard place to be, to be suffering in silence, to not believe and not know that somebody doesn't really understand and care. Such was Hagar's situation. Her life was a mess, but God. You see, God was present in her turmoil and her heartache. As she was in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord showed up and asked her a twofold question. Where have you come from? And where are you going? Now, this angel of the Lord, that's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And he asked her this question, Be assured, not for his sake, but for her sake. Jesus was the master of asking questions, never for his sake, always for the sake of the person to whom he was speaking, such is the case here. And he did so, I believe, to affirm his purpose and his promise and his provision for her. Though she felt that no one understands, God did. God took notice. He had not forgotten her. He had not turned his back on her. He had a good plan and purpose for her life. His provision would be sufficient for her. Ishmael would be born, and God's purposes would be accomplished, and God's provision would be sufficient for her. Where have you come from, Hagar, and where are you going? Some measure of self-evaluation. I think all of us at times need to be affirmed in God's purpose. And God's plan, God's provision. Pastor Andrew's been speaking a little bit on going back to the basics. You know, what is discipleship? And what is the church? And some of those basic questions that I think is good for us to review. Sort of get our anchor down, get our moorings, get our, get our, our, our moorings accurate again and, and, and that perspective that we need. Of what we're here for. Why are we placed on this earth? How do we bring glory to God? Those are questions that I think we need to be reminded of and and that affirmation, especially when you get lost in that relentless pursuit or that relentless list of daily responsibilities, the daily grind, as it were. They talk about the glory of the grind. There's not a lot of glory in a lot of the grinds of our lives. When you're weary, when you feel alone, when your spouse doesn't quite get it and is distant from you, when your friend deserts you, when you wonder, am I making a difference to anyone? When you wonder, would I be missed? Those times of life when it's good to reevaluate. Many of you know it was, what, 15 years ago I read the book by Paul Tripp, Grace in the Middle, Midlife and the Grace of God. I said, I'm not having a midlife crisis. I wasn't riding around in a red convertible, Daryl. I use that all the time, don't I? I don't know why I say that. It's always you. All right, let me say, I don't ride around in a blue convertible. I used to. My 66 Mustang convertible. I wasn't having an affair with my wife, on my wife. But it was through a period of time when it 
reevaluating. Here I am. I've been in ministry now 20, 20, 20 years at that time, 25 years. Am I making a difference? What is God's purpose? What is God's plan? Where do I find my identity? That's been a struggle my whole life. Where do I find my identity? Is my identity found in this church or is my identity found in who I am in Christ? Is my identity found in who my wife is and my family and how well they're doing or how poorly they're doing or is my identity found in who I am in Christ? You need your identity found in who you are in Jesus Christ. First and foremost. So we got to deal with that. We got to come to grips with those things. And here Hagar's spirits were lifted as God appears to her in the person of Jesus Christ. And, he, and she says, You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees me, Lord. You are the God who found me here in the desert. God is the God who sees compassionately. A high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, in our struggles, who knows our sinful ways and went to the cross to take care of that, to release us from the debt, to set us free from the bondage to sin. Know this today, God sees you. God sees your plight. God sees your joys. God sees your sorrows. God sees your loneliness. He sees your daily labor that is faithful. He sees your weariness. He sees your circumstances. And he reminds you today that his plans for you are good. And his purposes for you are good. And his faithfulness and love for you, as Pastor Dan read this morning, is everlasting. He's a good God. And his provisions will be your daily portion. For Hagar, for us, God sees. He sees compassionately. I think of Psalm 33. This glorious psalm speaks of the word of God, first of all, and the, the word that God gave to us. And it speaks about God being, being Lord and sovereign over, over all of creation. And then he's sovereign over the nations. And he's sovereign over all mankind. And then it says, but his eyes are on those who fear him. I think in that text one time I used the illustration when Annie was away for a year or whatever, Annie or Amy served studying in Israel, whatever the case may have been, and, and you're at the airport and you're waiting for them to come home. You remember, Corinne, and you're waiting for your child to come off that airplane, and the masses of people are coming up that ramp. You don't see them. Your eyes are looking for that loved one. And when she walks through that door, you light up, and you make a beeline because your eyes are focused on her. God looks upon those who fear him. His eyes are on those who fear him. God sees. He sees you. He sees your situation today. He sees it with compassion. Let's look at the second scenario. This is found in 1 Samuel 1. I'm picking on the women today. This is Hannah. So Hannah in the brokenness of this world bears the pain of unfulfilled dreams. 
She knew the brokenness of unfulfilled dreams, of unfulfilled longings of her heart. I might add good longings, holy longings, but it went unfulfilled for a long time. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read about Elkanah. He had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children and Hannah had none. Thus, the deep pain of an unfulfilled dream, an unmet expectation from God. And it tells us in this passage, every year, every year, year after year, Elkanah would go with his two wives to make sacrifices. And every time they'd go up, the pain of this unfulfilled longing of the heart of Hannah would be exacerbated as Penina would rub it in as Panina would flaunt the fact that she had children and Hannah did not. And it would crush Hannah's spirit. And 1 Samuel 1 verse 7 says it went on year by year. I want you to notice the words used in the text to describe the depth of Hannah's pain. She wept. She would not eat. She experienced anxiety and vexation. She was troubled in spirit, verse 15. This is a woman in turmoil because of an unmet longing and expectation and hope that she had. Part of her pain, I think, was knowing that God was sovereign, even over her childlessness. It says God closed her womb. There's some things I don't understand in life. That's one of them. A woman wants a baby, can't get pregnant. Another woman gets pregnant and aborts her baby. Doesn't think twice. There's some things I don't understand. Mental illness. The greatest challenges of ministry is how to handle the issue of mental illness, which, by the way, we better be talking about. Struggles with depression that exist in the lives of God's people. So I read biographies, biographies of great men, preachers of the past, even preachers of the present. You begin to see how much they struggled with depression. It's a hard place to be, my friend. <clears throat> and some of you know. So here's Hannah. She has the pain of a good desire, unfulfilled, amplified, wondering if God even cares. God could change it. And notice this pain of Hannah went on for a long, long time. Again, year by year. And notice Elkanah's response in verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Don't you love this guy? <laughs> you got me. I'm a prize. What do you need anything else for? Now, I really don't think that's what he meant. I think Elkanah was truly being a sensitive husband and focusing on the blessing that they had as husband and wife. 
But I'll tell you this, when our hearts are heavy over broken dreams and unfulfilled longings, when they are heavy with that kind of a heaviness, it's easy to be blind to the present-day blessings that God has given us. For Hannah, she lost sight of the blessing of a husband who loved her. You've heard me say often, in the midst of this broken world, we need to, by the grace of God, keep our eyes open. And in the midst of the deepest of heartaches even, we need to keep our eyes open and look for those evidences of God's grace. Evidences of God's goodness that continue to be poured out upon us even in those times of the valley. So here's Hannah. She did the right thing. With the pain of her heart, she prayed to God. Eli the priest saw this woman moving her lips but not speaking, accused her of being drunk. That's sensitive. (laughs) But Hannah responded, verse 15, no, I'm not drunk. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Let the pathos of her heart grip you. This woman who all she could do was take this burden to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. I think of Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. We may not understand God's ways, and we often don't, but God understands our situations. God understands our sorrows and heartaches. He was a man of sorrows, Jesus, familiar with suffering, acquainted with grief. And we have one who promises to be and is all that we need. One of the verses I clung to and continued to in, in, in my Bible, Psalm 73, 25, and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides or above you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is all that I need, not always all that I want, if we're honest. But he says, I'm all that you need. I will be that to you. Isn't that what he said to Paul when Paul begged him, take this thorn in the flesh away. Take it away, God, take it away. And God says, no, I will be all that you need. My grace will be sufficient for you. That's the promise. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Having poured out her heart before the Lord, she went her way, she ate, she was no longer sad. Now granted, Hannah received a word from Eli the priest that God heard and she would conceive. And Hannah was filled with faith, resulted in, resulting in peace. That's what God desires of all of us. We don't all, ha- all have that outworking of God's promise to us like that. But God does desire for us to do exactly what Hannah did. Pour out your heart to God. Take your burdens to him. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? And the peace of God shall guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. That's what God desires of us and then to trust him with the outcome. We read in verse 19, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. They were intimate. And the Lord remembered her. The God who sees, 
Here's a God who remembers. And God remembers purposefully. And in due time, we read, Hannah conceived and bore a son. I want you to connect her praying to the phrase in verse 20, in due time. We could easily say in God's time. But in due time, what does that imply? It implies that time went along. We don't know how long the span was between Eli's prophetic word and the birth of Samuel. We don't know. But it would not seem to be that she conceived right when they got back home and laid together. It seems as though time elapsed even then. In due time, she conceived. She conceived. God may answer your prayer quickly. And I'm sure if we take time, we could all express testimonies of how God intervened and answered our prayer quickly. There's other times that God says, wait. And a long time may have elapsed between our prayers being brought before the Lord and his answers. And then there are times when God says no. And I guarantee that every one of us in this sanctuary has things that are burdens of our hearts that have yet to be answered. And you know what they are because you carry them with you as I carry them with me every day. And we bring those needs before the Lord. We pour out our hearts before him and we trust him. We're called to pray. We're called to keep on praying. We're called to trust him. And even when God says no, even in that, he has only good purposes. He has only good plans for his children. Isaiah 64, verses 4 and 5 says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Give your longing to the Lord over and over again. Pour out your heart before him. God is a God who remembers purposefully. For Hagar and for us, he was a God who sees compassionately. You know, this idea of remembering, I don't want us to get the wrong idea. So, we recently had our first anniversary. <clears throat> if the end of that day I said, oh, Mindy, by the way, I remember today was our anniversary. No card. No dinner. No gift. No flowers. I don't know that she would have given me a round of applause. Oh, good for you, Bill. You remembered. You see, that's not what we're talking about here. Remembered brings purpose. This remembering is an active remembering. It's not passive. This remembering brings engagement. This remembering brings action, purpose. God sees compassionately. He remembers purposefully. And the last one, and I will land with this, okay? I'm going to go to the New Testament now in 2 Timothy. And I'm looking now, we've had two scenarios of brokenness, and I want to now see this example of God's saving power. Now, 
I believe there was still some brokenness here. I'm looking at Eunice and Lois and Timothy. Not much said about Timothy's father. Perhaps he passed away when Timothy was very young. We don't know the details of that, but what we do know is that Eunice embraces the joy of a faith legacy. And she knew the generational faithfulness of her God. Second Timothy, we're given a glimpse into the significant influence of a godly mom and a grandmother on the life of a young man, Timothy, who would be used mightily by God. Timothy was born of a, to a Jewish God-fearing woman and a Greek Gentile father. And both Timothy's mom and grandmother had a profound spiritual influence upon his life. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, it says, Paul writes to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. You know, young people, we need to make that faith ours. It doesn't come by osmosis because mom and dad have a faith in Jesus Christ. Young people need to embrace that. All of us, as we grew up, needed to embrace that personally for ourselves. This is my faith. And some of you didn't have a mom and a dad who passed it down to you. But God in His grace brought the gospel to you through various means. And many of you here responded to that. But Timothy made it his own faith. He, and I think our young people, as we grapple with truth, we need to come down on the side of faith as God works in our hearts. So both Lois and Eunice came to embrace Christ as their Savior, Messiah. Timothy became a believer at a young age, something believing parents long for their children. I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in truth. As John would write, but look at how it happened. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Impart the word to our children. Live the word out before our children. I love that context. And maybe I love it so much because that's a part of my story. And some of you know that. A godly grandmother and a godly mom. Also a godly grandfather and a godly dad who laid a firm biblical foundation for me from my infancy. And if you know my story, you know I've never taken that for granted. I don't know why I was blessed to be born to mom and dad to have grandparents who knew Jesus Christ, to whom much is given, much is required. So I was blessed in that regard. Deuteronomy chapter 6 gives us this model. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and then you shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And sometimes that generational faith journey is seamless, as it seems to be with Lois and Eunice and Timothy. Sometimes the baton is passed smoothly, it seems, without missing a step. That was not the case with me. In my teen years, I brought mom and dad a good bit of trouble. 
I was the black sheep of the family. I have four siblings, two older, here comes Bill, and then two younger. Middle child, that's all you need to know. I surely, and you know my, many of you know my story. It wasn't drugs and alcohol and all that. It was other stuff. But I put my parents through a lot. I know I grieved the Lord. I played the game. I put on the front. But when I was with my peers, I was nothing. You know, I'm, gracious, I'm grateful that God has given me a second chance with my classmates. In two weeks, I'm having my 50th class reunion. I know you can't believe I'm that old. But, <laughs> but I have an opportunity living back in Allentown of seeing some of my classmates who still live in that area and being able to have conversations. And, and I think, you know, I've been, they've asked me, I can share at my reunion. I've done it a couple times and praying and things like that. So... But without going into details, my actions in those years compelled my dear mom to gather other moms to pray for me. That God would grip my heart. I still have old women coming up to me and saying, Bill, I prayed for you with your mom. What can I say except thank you? God did grip my heart, and he never let go. He never let go of me. I want to ask your indulgence. Take about five more minutes, and we'll wrap it up, okay? All right, Pastor Andrew? Okay. I think years ago I might have shared an excerpt of this with the congregation. I don't remember, but I told you I'm going through boxes. And I found this in one of the boxes. I think it's appropriate. So I indulge you, it's a little personal. It's from my Uncle Bob. Some of you remember my Uncle Bob because he was in uh, Battle of the Bulge and he came here and shared one Memorial Day weekend about his experiences and things like that. But he wrote me a letter on the occasion of my ordination back in December of 1988. He says, Dear Bill, I had mentioned to you on a previous occasion, this is my Uncle Bob, it's my mom's older brother, one of about eight siblings. Some of the thoughts that came to me on the way to your ordination service, I don't know why my thoughts went back to my own youth, but they did. I guess we all share some of that introspection when it, when it comes to certain pivotal times in our lives. When I was going to high school, and I believe Warren, another brother, an uncle that I had, had just begun his first job, and your mom was still in grade school. Mom was the baby of the family. Mother was, that's my grand, mother was still, your mother was still in, in, in grade school. Our day always began the same. Each of us left the house at a different time. Warren first, I second, and Dolly, my mom, third. As each of us left, mom would kneel with us at a chair on the kitchen floor and pray with us. We had a baker who would come to the door, call out, Baker, open the door, come into the kitchen, lay bread on the chair inside the door, and then simply leave. It seemed never to fail that when it was my time to leave and we were on our knees praying, the baker would come. Of course, as a cool teenager with a chest full of rebellion, this amounted to almost terminal humiliation. 
That didn't bother mom one bit. Here was this woman with nothing but a third grade education whose knowledge of God and whose consciousness of being in his presence was so intimate and real that I am convinced had the president of the United States walked into that kitchen, she would not have missed a word or even a syllable. Later on, when I got out of the service, going to my room, often very late at night, I would have to brush past her at the place where she prayed on my way to bed. At the time, I remember thinking, what a waste of time. And what an unworthy posture on your knees. It didn't take me too long to find out that that posture of humiliation is the most potent picture of power that we will ever see. I guess the thought that struck me is that you and I will never escape the power of such prayer because there is nothing such as dormant prayer. You know quite well the influence that this godly woman had on our family. She was like the hound of heaven. She pursued us with her prayers and in league with her heavenly father did not rest until we were literally chased into his presence to find our rest in Christ, all seven of us. I pray for you daily, Bill, and for your ministry. May the Lord bless you richly. In his love, your Uncle Bob. They're all with the Lord now. Dear people, that's God's grace at work. We sang the song, His goodness was running after me. His goodness was running, a- His goodness was running after me. He was relentless. And I guarantee you I am standing here today and I am what I am today in no small part because of a grandmother who I never knew. She passed away before I was born because there's no such thing as dormant prayer. And I'm grateful. And I share that story to encourage you here who have longings of your heart for which you are praying. Don't give up. There is no such thing as dormant prayer. For Lois and Eunice and for us, God saves mightily. His grace still is at work. His power to save is still at work. If your children are following Jesus, rejoice in God's calling them to himself. If your children are young, keep praying that God would fashion and form in them a heart that would seek after him at a young age and follow him closely and know him personally. If your children have walked away from the faith that they were taught from infancy, know that the final chapter has not yet been written. It's it's been written, but it's not been revealed. The hound of heaven continues to pursue. Not long ago, I spoke with an elder of another Bible fellowship church. He had a son who absolutely turned his back on Jesus, turned his back on everything he was taught. And on Easter Sunday, he told his dad, Dad, I gave my life to Christ. Out of the blue. It wasn't out of the blue. God was at work. But this brother didn't see it. But God was working. God still works. If you came to faith later in life and did not have the opportunity to teach your children to faith when they were young because you didn't have it yourself, pray that God would restore the years the locusts have eaten and trust your grown children to him and pray for them. If you're a grandparent, redeem this season of your life by investing in the lives of your grandchildren with a godly influence. Live authentically that faith before them. 
as in Deuteronomy 6. And if you have no relationship with your grandchildren, pray for them from a distance. That God's grace and love would follow them. We have a God who saves, a God who forgives, a God who restores, a God who redeems, a God who affirms. Life is messy. Life is broken. But God is greater than all of that. Like Hagar, if your heart is filled with some measure, whether it be loneliness, isolation, disillusionment today, know that God is the God who sees compassionately. That's Jesus. Everything points us to Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus lives in you. Jesus sees compassionately. He sees you, your circumstances, and he always moves towards you in grace. Like Hannah, if your heart is filled with the pain of lost dreams, unfulfilled longings, know that God is the God who remembers purposefully. He remembers you. He continues to have good plans and purposes for your life. And I urge you, whatever season you're in, but some of us older folks, may we finish well before God by his grace. And finally, like Eunice, if your heart is filled with joy as you celebrate the blessings of a loving family, give thanks. Give thanks. And continue to pray for your children, grandchildren. If you don't have any, pray for others. And let's be an encouragement to one another, always pointing one another to Jesus. He is all that we need. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, how, how glorious to know that you're the God who sees compassionately, the God who remembers purposely, and God, that you're the God who saves mightily. Most of us in this sanctuary would give testimony to that. God, if there's someone here who does not know Jesus Christ, has not come to that place of, of, of entrusting their life to Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross to bear their sin and rose again to give newness of life, God, may they come to Jesus. God, you know who's discouraged today. You know who's weary. You know who is under the immense burden of an unfulfilled longing. God, in ways that perhaps they've never experienced before, you be to them what they need in every way. God, you're a good and gracious God. We love you and adore you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.